Hey, friends. So uh, our audio did not record very well uh, from the sound mixer on Sunday. And it made the video for the message pretty much unusable and I'm, I'm really sorry about that but instead I decided I would just kind of rehash some of the message here for you and, and hopefully uh, it'll have the same effect for you so we are here uh, the last Sunday of Epiphany was a couple of weekends ago and Ash Wednesday, of course, this previous Wednesday was the first Sunday of Lent. But we didn't get to meet on the last Sunday due to the severe ice and snow. Uh, kept us all shacked up at home pretty much all weekend long. And we didn't get to have our Ash Wednesday service either. So this past Sunday, uh, we just we went ahead and wrapped up Epiphany with a message about the transfiguration of Jesus. And I, I just think it's one of these really central pictures in the Gospel of Mark especially uh, that we needed to pay attention to. I think it was important enough uh, to not go ahead and, and just move right into the first Sunday of Lent, but to actually give this, this, uh, this, this part of the story, this part of the Gospel, uh, its due diligence. And there are so many aspects of this thing that we're not going to cover today, uh, but I do want to pay special attention to a couple of things. In, a, in addition, on Sunday, we wound up uh, doing the Ashes for Ash Wednesday as well on Sunday at the end. And so we just kind of used Sunday's service to wrap up Epiphany and kickstart Lent all in one go. And so today, to kick things off, let's read from the scriptures. We're looking here at Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 2 through 9, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It says this, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So the Bible is loaded with what you might call mountaintop experiences, significant experiences with God in the life of the people of God. There's so many of these all through the text, but here are just some some highlights, some examples from the Bible for you. In Genesis 8, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. In Genesis 22, Abraham was instructed to take Isaac up Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And on this same mountain, Abraham received a promise from God. In Exodus 3, the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush on Mount Horeb. And in Exodus 24 and 34, God gives Moses the first and second sets of stone tablets with the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. It was also in Exodus 34 that Moses' face was shining after talking with God on that mountain, and the people were afraid to come near him. 
That sounds a little bit like the passage we just read, yeah? As a quick aside, most scholars agree that Mount Moriah, Mount Horeb, and Mount Sinai are actually different names from different times for the same location, right? So Mount Moriah, Horeb, and Sinai are, are more than likely the same mountain. Moving on, the Jewish temple was constructed on Mount Zion. In 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah confronted 150 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And in 1 Kings 19, God gave Elijah clear direction on Mount Horeb at one of the lowest points of his ministry. It was on a high mountain where Satan tempted Jesus with worldly power in Matthew 4. And in the very next chapter, and mirroring Moses again in the stone tablets, Jesus went up a mountain to deliver what we call the Sermon on the Mount. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus warns his followers of a coming persecution before the ultimate victory of God's kingdom. God's kingdom, that's an important term that I think we'll come back to a lot in the, the weeks and months and years ahead. Jesus was crucified, of course, on Mount Calvary, also called Golgotha. It was in the mountains near Galilee where Jesus gave his first disciples the Great Commission, that is to be and make disciples. Again, on the Mount of Olives, the disciples witnessed the resurrected Christ ascend to heaven. So these mountaintop experiences were often the setting for supernatural appearances and revelations from God, and they often came to provide a clarity and strengthen faith for those in attendance. Today, we're taking a peek at one other such mountaintop experience, the one mentioned in our gospel reading just now. This scene from Mark 9 also occurs in Matthew 17 and Luke 9. So one fascinating aspect of Mark's account of this event is where it shows up in the structure of the story itself. There's a literary device that was used frequently in the ancient world to structure their work, and the writers of scripture used it all the time. It's called chiasmus or chiasm, and it's when key ideas in the text are repeated, but in reverse. So we've been talking about mountaintops, so let's use that as an example to illustrate. You start on one side of a mountain, climb your way to the top, and then descend down the other side. Your experience coming down the backside of the mountain mirrors your experience going up the mountain to begin with. It's repeated, but in reverse. But what about the top of the mountain? You don't really repeat that part of the trip, do you? No, not really, because more than likely the top of the mountain was the point of the trip. The peak of the mountain, the point of the mountain was the main point of your expedition. So like I said, ancient writers would use chiasmus quite frequently to illustrate the main point they were trying to make or signify a turning point in the story. And they come in all shapes and sizes, these chiasms. They can be as small as a single sentence or two. Here's an example from John 4, verses 23 and 24 in the New Revised Center Version again. But the hour is coming, and now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So you have that phrase, worship in spirit and truth. Next part. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. Right? These to worship him. And then the next phrase, God is spirit. The next phrase, and those who worship him. Oh, right away, do you see that repetition? Before God is spirit, there was these to worship him. And then here we are after God is spirit, and those who worship him. And then finally, must worship in spirit and truth. 
And there again is that repetition of that first phrase. So altogether, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So do you see there, it's kind of hard, it's easier to see this on paper, of course, but if you're following along, you can see how we kind of go up that mountain to God is spirit and then come back down the other side, repeating those key phrases or ideas. And these chiasms, they can even span entire documents, like is the case with Mark's gospel, actually. So this entire book, this entire gospel narrative takes this big mountain-type structure, and it, and it peaks at, this is my son, listen to him. If you look at this really, really closely, you can see how the trip down mirrors the trip up. Notice how it begins and ends with an angel witnessing to his coming and going. Notice the guilt of the scribes in 329 and their judgment in 1240. And what about the peak? Where does this trip come to a peak? It's in Mark 9, 7. This is my son. Listen to him. This moment occurs in our gospel reading this morning in the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. This scene in Mark's gospel, this experience, is probably the main point Mark is trying to make. It occurs at the top of a mountain and the top of this chiasm as well. At the very least, this should signal to us that Mark thinks this scene is very important to the telling of his story. This experience is also a turning point in the story for Jesus and for his disciples. This episode is sandwiched between Jesus twice prophesying of his eventual betrayal, death, and resurrection. The disciples, especially Peter, did not like hearing this. Far be it from you to die. It can't happen. Peter, of course, was still hoping for, expecting even his Messiah to overthrow their oppressive Roman rulers. He, along with many of his contemporaries, wanted a king to come in power and strike down the evil empire. So Jesus prophesies, Peter denies, God says, this is my son, listen to him, and Jesus prophesies again the same. It is of this experience which the apostle Peter proclaims in Second Peter 1, verses 16 to 18, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Another thing this passage illustrates for us is the very gospel that Jesus preached. What was it? In Mark's gospel, it shows up in chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as you've sometimes heard, is near. It's near because it's not far away. It's close. It's at hand. It's within your reach. This episode is revealing to us the nearness of heaven. But what really is heaven? Our culture tends to read these words about heaven or to think about heaven as though it were a distant thing, far away, way up there. But biblically speaking, this is a false belief, a false narrative. And if you recall, we've been talking about addressing our false narratives and the hold they have on us. 
So Peter, James, and John are given a gift to see into this other realm. From our perspective, in our current state, it looks radiant, bright, glowing, bleached. Think about this experience. Try to to imagine it. Put yourself in the shoes of Peter, James, or John witnessing this moment and dwell on that glorious moment and the potential for clarity that it might have brought to, to Jesus and his disciples. This is my son. Listen to him. Are you listening to him? So most people tend to think of heaven as far away, out there, up there. But if this is our understanding of heaven, then we are not thinking like the writers of scriptures were. Heaven isn't some distant place full of clouds and harps. I think you know this much at this point, but what is it really? N.T. Wright summed up the Bible's teaching about heaven as God's dimension of reality, which intersects our world like parallel dimensions. And I know that sounds kind of sci-fi and strange, but that appears to be the way the Bible actually talks about what heaven is. And likewise, Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy, he challenges us to think of heaven like a different dimension of reality, as close as your own breath. I wish I could draw to illustrate this for you, what's actually happening in this world. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. The word we translate as heaven in the English is actually plural in the original Hebrew. More accurately, it should be read as heavens, the kingdom of the heavens. It's kind of like our word skies. Where is the sky? Is it up there? Where? Where does, where does that start? Where does whatever this is around us stop and sky start? Is there like a barrier between what we have down here and sky? What about sky and, and space? Where does sky stop and space start? Is there a barrier there as well? It's all really the same sky. The sky is actually all around us, everywhere, all the time. This is what the kingdom of heavens is like. It's it's all around us, everywhere, all the time. The challenge is for, is, is for us to be and remain aware of this other dimension of reality. And again, I know how weird that sounds. <laughs> to understand heaven as a faraway place, though, way up there, is, and listen to me, it is to miss the gospel. Jesus' narrative is the very gospel he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It is not far away. The reality of our existence is that we all live our entire lives in the presence of God. You cannot avoid it. All the time, part of our problem, though, is that we are seldom actively aware of it. C.S. Lewis put it this way, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. But as we discussed last week, 
it is all too easy for us to become inundated with our to-do lists and, and the pace of life at the expense of our awareness of this reality. And I believe it is a good thing for our thinking and our doing to align with reality. And to that end, we can utilize an ancient spiritual discipline that's meant to help us learn to be more consistently aware of the nearness of God and his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but right away, that sounds appealing to me. Like I wonder how I might be in this life if I were aware of God's presence in every moment of every day. It sounds, it sounds like Jesus, right? But if, but if I'm honest, it also sounds a tad overwhelming. But that's only evidence of the kind of person that I am now and not the kind of person that I want to be, a person like Jesus. To be sure, your to-do list is not a bad thing, but we can learn to sanctify it bit by bit, turning even the most mundane of tasks into opportunities to be with God. The discipline is called practicing the presence. And if you recall, we learn to surrender all by starting with surrendering a little. So we'll keep this simple at first. So what I want you to do this week is to select one task, one item from your to-do list. But I want this task to be something that comes with regularity. It can be something that you do on a weekly basis if it takes a bit longer, like say mowing the yard. But I would prefer if you started with a shorter task of say five to 10 minutes and that it came to you daily, that it doesn't require a great deal of mental energy, right? A great example of something like this would just be like washing the dishes, right? It comes to you pretty much every day and it takes five to minutes tops and it doesn't really take a lot of thought. It's just something that you're doing kind of mindlessly. If it, what I want you to do is, is dedicate this task to the Lord, right? And again, I know it can sound silly, but you're going to be washing dishes for Jesus, right? So before you begin, I want you to say it to him out loud. I'm about to wash the dishes and I'm dedicating this task to you, Jesus. And then I want you to talk to Jesus while you are performing the task. Tell him what you are doing as you are doing it. Tell him why you are doing it the way you're doing it, right? Maybe even ask him, how should I do this? And I know, again, sounds weird, but maybe he'll show you something. And then when you're done, I want you to talk to him again after you complete the task and thank him for the task itself, that you get to do it. Thank him for being with you while performing the task and tell him you're looking forward to doing whatever you choose with him again. Eventually, it will be harder for you to start doing this task, like washing the dishes, without thinking of God. Your experience of the task will be synonymous with experiencing the presence of God for you, and perhaps you will begin looking for other tasks you can invite Jesus to do with you. With this practice, you can turn even the most mundane of things into experiences with Jesus. Because while mountaintop experiences may provide us with a great sense of clarity and direction, most of life, most of life happens in the daily mundane. Those mountaintop experiences, they're great. They're wonderful. I want them right? There are Christians who spend 
their entire lives, though, chasing the next great experience with God. Maybe that was even you. I mean, I know that that was, I feel like that was me for a time as well. But the reality is that 99.9% of your life, God is waiting by the kitchen sink for you to come wash dishes with him. God is in the daily mundane. You can encounter God more in the daily mundane than you can in experiences. And again, I'm not... I'm not speaking negatively about these experiences. I love and cherish these experiences. But don't let those experiences be the only only way you really experience God. Right? Find God in the daily and mundane. That's the point. Because that is the vast majority of our lives. When we have those mountaintop experiences, they're meant to give us clarity, to give us direction. But if we don't carry that mountaintop clarity with us, then we've wasted the entire point of the view. The mountaintop was wasted. Yeah. So again, the point here today is just simply this. The kingdom of the heavens is near. The point is just the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is within your reach.